It's the season of giving, and we're looking ahead to the new year. And what better gift for the holidays is a gift that you get year-round, a book. Thanks to our sponsor, Book of the Month, we are happy to give you a discount on the best books of the year for just $9.99. You know I love Book of the Month. My mother was a member. My daughter's a member. I'm a member. And so do countless readers around the world because Book of the Month brings you the best titles at the best prices. Now, back to the discount. You can head to bookofthemonth.com and use code Adri at checkout to get your first book for $9.99. That's A-D-R-I at checkout. Thank you, Book of the Month. And thank you, dear listener. Thank you always, always for tuning in. And thank you, thank you for reading. What a delight the superstar author Robert Dugoni is. He's the critically acclaimed New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and number one Amazon bestselling author of the Tracy Crosswhite Police series set in Seattle, which has sold more than 8 million books worldwide. Robert's books are sold in more than 25 countries and have been translated into more than 30 languages. Not only is Robert Dugoni an international sensation in books, He's also a fellow Paisan and friend. You'll get to know this wonderful man in this conversation as an author. And Robert is a son, a brother, a husband, and a father. It's a very heartwarming conversation, but it's also about his creative soul and how he writes his books. You're going to get a lot out of this interview. I know I did about family, writing, creativity, parenting, faith, inspiration, and even more. And we're going to start with books. Here's Robert Dugoni. Robert, can you tell us about the books that shaped you as a child? Well, I was uh, I was very blessed. Uh, I I'm one of ten kids, and I have a, a mother that uh, before she started having kids was an English teacher. So I used to get in trouble a lot in grammar school because I'd be uh, I had older siblings, you know. So I was cocking it. I was the kid that always had the smart remark and all that crap. And I had a, a wonderful nun by the name of Sister Mary Williams when I was 12 years old, who rather than getting mad at me, uh, told my mom, he's bored. And so my mom started handing me books. So uh, the books that shaped me, as ridiculous as it sounds for a 12-year-old were, you know, The Count of Monte Cristo, The Great Gatsby, uh, um, all, the, all, the, all the classics. So, so did she have a collection of classics in the house or did she want to go to the library? No, she, she she had them in the in the house, and uh, yeah, I was reading Hemingway. Uh, I was reading I was reading all these just these fabulous books, um, and you know I fell in love with stories. Uh, I you know I just I was so engrossed in the books that I was reading that I would lose track of time. Uh, that I would you know I stopped screwing around. Um, I would sneak reading in school, you know, in class, um, all kinds of things. So it just. I, I was just very, very fortunate. It makes sense that you read these books with a large cast of characters in a world in peril a lot of times because you write espionage like nobody's business. I mean, you have a you have a very, very distinctive style, but I have to tell you, I think it's wholly original. It's it, it it's very fresh. Uh, I appreciate it. Um I, I do have, I think, a, a style, but it takes a long time to find it, right? For all of us writers, it's it's what is your style? Because your your first 
your first instinct is to just get published, right? I'm, I just got to get published. And so you, you're almost sort of mimicking what's already out there. And so you, I, when I started writing legal thrillers, I was writing Grisham legal thrillers. I was writing Tarot legal thrillers. Um, but over time, you know, over 25 or 26 books or whatever, what I started to realize is that I, I, I really write uh, um, characters in conflict. And, and so, uh, for instance, when I was asked to, to restart a legal thriller series, I said, I'll do it, but I'll do it my way, which was it has police procedural aspects in it. It has family dynamic aspects in it. And then it has the legal legal aspects in it. So, you know, what I look at is, is like you said, I, it, I, re I grew up reading live uh, about lives lived. And so I look at these characters, even though I'm starting on page one and they might be 40 years old, they had a history behind them. You know, what was that history behind them? You know, were they married? Are they married? How many kids? Uh, how did they get there? How did they get to that spot when a reader opens that first page and they start reading? And I try to I try to incorporate that into who they are as people at that moment that I'm writing about. Well, you know, you're also to me reading your books. You're you're an author that's in love with writing. This is not a chore for you. This is a voice that has to be heard, or I think maybe probably go a little nuts um, because the books are so beautifully rendered and thought through. I mean, you're plotting. I learn reading your books about how to plot. Uh, because it's never obvious. Of course, I don't guess anything because I'm a little stunad. <laughs> but coming from a big family, you know, you have a sense of, you can have a lot of people in a room in a scene. And I marvel at this. You get a lot of people in a room in a scene and I'm totally clear on the voices. Is, do you think that has to do with your childhood? I do. I, you know, I, I think the thing that's most interesting is I look at my nine siblings and we're all different. We're all different people, you know. You you talk about that nature versus nurture, and I, and I really believe more in the nature aspect of it because we're we're all so different, and we've all you know we've all had different. We live in different areas. I mean, and and you know, I think I don't. I'm not a big believer in that whole genetics thing. I'm just I'm just not. I think everybody is unique. Everybody's different. Um, I I do love what I do. I, I love getting to the computer. I love creating stories. Um, my editor and my agent are always trying to slow me down. Um, but, you know, this is this is what I do, and I do love it. But um, you know well enough that it, it's always a chore, <laughs> you know, no matter how much it, you it, love you know, it. It doesn't, and it doesn't no, get easier. It doesn't. It doesn't get easier. It's satisfying. It's, it's you know, it's the most intimate relationship of your life, probably next to your marriage. Uh, but it, it doesn't get easier. Why do you think it doesn't get easier? Because writing is hard. And, and the easier the story is to read, the harder it was to write. The easier the sentence is, the harder it was to write. You know, you write, you'll write these great metaphors or similes or analogies, and the reader just reads them. And, and I do this as a reader. I read them, and I go, wow, that is unbelievable. And you don't, you don't take into consideration what it took for the author to get to that point of making that analogy or that, that, you know, that metaphor just really sing. Um, it's really hard to make it easy. It really is. Now, when you when you had Sister Mary William, is that her yeah, name? Yes, Sister Mary Williams. Did she? What she? What do you think she saw in you as a little kid? I think she saw. I, I think she saw a young kid that had a had an imagination. Uh, a young kid that was probably craving attention. Um, when you grow up in a large family and you're the middle child, um, no matter how much 
your parents try, they they can't they can't spend the same amount of time with everyone. And when I was 12 years old, my youngest brother was born with Down syndrome, and and all of the family attention shifted to my brother, all, all of it, and rightfully so, you know. But I was only a 12 year old boy, and suddenly my mother was you know was focused on my my brother. And um, I think my mother had um, had some very some difficulties that you you realize as an older person you realize, you know, she wasn't just sad, she was probably depressed, um, she wasn't just nervous, she had anxiety, you know. And so you start to realize all these things that you know your your parents were going through at that time. And so, you know, I wasn't acting out. I wasn't a malicious kid, but I I I was probably that kid that was saying, hey. <laughs> What, what about me? You know, what, what, what about me? And uh, he was just doing it in the wrong way. Um, and I think Sister Mary Williams saw that. And she was just such a lovely lady, just such a wonderful, wonderful lady. Did she read in the classroom? Did she, did she give you books in the classroom? No, I don't, I don't, I don't really remember that, honestly. Um, but, but I do remember she would say to me, you know, what are you reading? You know, and I'd say, I'd say, I'm reading The Old Man in the Sea. And she kind of, get this look on her face. And I said, it's about this guy, he fishes and he gets this big fish, you know? And that was my perspective. And this shark comes and the shark's attacking the fish. And, and she, uh, you know, she, I think she was just happy to see me happy and, and kind of fulfilling my potential. I'm not surprised you read Hemingway Young because the way your descriptions are very uh, crystalline, they're clear. There's not embellishment. I don't have a great vocabulary, uh, you know. I I really don't. I mean, I know some people that just have just these marvelous vocabularies, and you know, I'm just I'm not one of them. But that's okay because, um, you know, I'm I'm just trying to write a story that people want to read. Uh, I'm not trying to win any Pulitzer prizes or or any of those kind of things. I just I I want to write a story that when someone puts it down, they they give that sigh. You know, and they and they say, "I wonder what happens next." Well, not only do they read them, they read the next one and the next one and the next one. Which I always say, there's an energy field, and your readers sort of determine your output. They tell you, you know, I'm sure when you go places, they'll say, "When's the next one?" And you want to go, "Why don't you we go on that?" No, we get to the next. But it, it's it's and but this is a good thing about reading that it propagates reading. It makes reading. I call them potato chips. It's like, you're not going to need one. You're going to read more than one book. Yeah, you find that author that resonates with you. And you do. You go and, and, and you just start you start buying all their books. You know, I, um, I, 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 I'm probably also like you in that I, I, I never want to mail a book in, ever. I, you know, the book I write might not be as good as the last book that I wrote, but it hopefully will be a good book, a good read. And, you know, that's the, mo I think that's the most satisfying um, thing for me is when I get an email from someone that will say to me, uh, I had never heard of you. And I picked up a copy of, you know, uh, The Extraordinary Life of Sam Hell. And it's one of the, my favorite books of all time. And, and I've gone back and I've, I've read everything you've ever written because I've had that same experience as well. Um, and um, you just, you want to make sure... I've said this before, and I don't know if, if you and I talked about it before, but I said, you can never expect that someone reading your book has read your prior books. So that means the book they're reading is the first experience they've had with your writing, and it has to be good, 
or hopefully even great, or they won't go buy any other books. Have you noticed, Robert, that the way people read has shifted? It's, um, it's different from when we were kids. It, we had, you know, there were four television stations and there, were, there was limited access to the worldwide anything. Um, we had to read about that in books if we were going to, or we saw it at the movies or, and, and the phenomenon of, of, of authors that, and I, and I love Colleen Hoover, the phenomenon of authors like Colleen Hoover is it replaces what we used to watch, which would be the movie of the week or the ABC after school special. You probably remember yeah, those or, so now people consume books in that way and they look for certain uh, the young audiences love Jeopardy. They love the Jeopardy and the high stakes and the, and a woman in peril stories. They just love those, the sad woman stories. Your books are more classic in nature in that you, you run on several tracks, whether it's the legal system with the justice system with a family. But in your books, the family's always very present. It's important to you, isn't it? Very much. Uh, very much. Uh, yeah. And I think it's because we are who we are in large part because of how we were raised and where we were raised. And, um, you know, I think as you get older, you begin to, you begin to see more and more of that. Um, and so, you know, I grew up in a wonderful home, but we had our issues and I can look back on it now and it, and realize it wasn't perfect. But my mother used to always like to say, um, I did the best that I could. And you know what? I understand what she means now, because as a parent, I did the best that I could. It wasn't perfect, but it was the best that I that I could do. And um, so I have a lot of respect for that, and I have a lot of respect for, uh, you know, I want I wanted my kids to grow up in a in a strong uh, um, family environment, in a faith filled environment. You know, something that they would they would never feel alone. They would never feel, even even when they were by themselves, they would never feel alone. That was just important to me. So that was your fam- that was basically your family mission, was that you're included here in this family. It really was. What did you What did you read to the kids? A lot of the Harry Potter books. So the kids liked fantasy and big stories. Well, they just, and- th- those books were just so amazing, and I you know I I will never forget as you know as a parent you know you can appreciate this. What I will never forget is taking taking my son and daughter to go see the first Harry Potter movie and being in the theater when they open the door to Hogwarts and those candles are all floating in the air and the ceiling. And you could just see their eyes just get big. They just get big like, wow, wow. Those are some of the best book to movie adaptations ever. And for children. Yeah, ever. For children. Ever. Yeah, really incredibly well done. It put the the incredible Mr. Limpet in perf- perspective <laughs> yeah, for us, didn't it? <laughs> Which is like bad in Don Knotts' face and bad in a fish. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, Harry Potter is a masterpiece. And the, the Broadway version of it, which I think is also important about words, you know, if, if you have a strong story, it can translate to any medium in dramatization, any medium. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was a gog at what that was. I always, I always say the same thing. I'll say, a uh, a good good story can make a great actor, but a great actor cannot solve a bad story. Um, you know, if 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 it's not written well, uh, 
you can have the greatest actor in the world revert saying those lines and it just doesn't translate. But if it's written well and you have uh, you have an actor, they can make those actors. And a lot of those actors in Harry Potter, we never saw before. That's right. You know, the kids and, you know, and some of them obviously were a little more famous, but uh, and they all now are, are recognizable because those stories made them. That, I mean, that's, it's really an advertisement for everything you're saying in this broadcast, which is storytelling. It's everything. It's everything. And, and if you do it well, you will be remembered or your work is remembered. The story is remembered for all time. Nobody will forget Harry Potter. No, not, no. I mean, that will go down in the, in the same, you know, vein as Charles Dickens and, you know, all those classic stories will, that'll be there. I mean, um. Some of Stephen King's books. I mean, I think Stephen King will be long remembered as one I of those, so one of those, you know, really wonderful, incredible storytellers. And I mean, I think that's when he's at his best when he's doing the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile and eleven twenty two sixty three. They're just fantastic stories. So you really raised on the classics, really, or or let's say sparked by the classics, but you really love contemporary best-selling literature i just love a good story you know i've said that before to people say what do you read and i'll say anything and i really will i'll re- i'll read you know i'll read chiclet I'll re- i read the boston girl i mean i i'll read chiclet i'll read anything as long as it's a good story it doesn't matter to me what the genre is fantasy sci-fi western if it's a good story then that I'm captivated. I'll, I'll I'll go to Planet Gog, and you know what I mean. It doesn't doesn't matter. Just just give me a good story. When you went to college, uh, were you surprised at how your literature was was uh, was taught to you, or did you get into it? Well, um, what I really did was uh, I got into journalism uh, because that's sort of what I what I did in high school when my. Uh, when my basketball coach came to me and said, you really can't play. <laughs> That's always good to hear. Yeah, I was like, okay, well, uh, but he said, you know, Joe Schaefer needs an editor of a school newspaper. I can hear you can really write. Probably the best advice I got from the most unlikely source possible, and it set me on my path. So I learned journalism writing, and I, I literally... Uh, I started writing news stories, et cetera. So, you know, cut out all the extraneous and just get to the point. And then uh, I, I sort of branched out and started writing uh, fiction, not fiction, um, features. So now the personalities are introduced into a narrative. Right. I wrote a feature on one of only two black uh, students in the entire school, Blair Calhoun. And Blair was a great athlete um, and he was also a great student. And so I wrote this story about Blair, who played football, basketball, ran track. Uh, and, I, and, and the teacher, you know, the story came out, the story got published. It was time for awards, you know, county awards. To, so we had to submit stories for county awards. Teacher wasn't even going to submit it. It wasn't even on his radar. And I forget what happened, but something happened. And he said, well, let's, let's just submit this one. And it won. And why did it win? Well, now I can go back and I can look at it. I said, because it was a story about a person. It was a story about a human being. It wasn't a story about sports. It was a story about a kid coping in a completely white environment. And not only coping, but excelling. Um, 
and uh it just it you know that's that was sort of where, where i started that could not have been easy no because i had to ask him some difficult questions you know sure you know what's it like being once that you you're gonna hurt him yeah. you felt like you'd hurt his feelings yeah. yeah well and you know i can remember we used to work out at a place uh in uh in um down where I live, down in the San Mateo area, and the guy was a racist bigot, and nobody ever thought about it because it was cheap. And I remember we were at we were at school one day, and Blair said to me, "Well, I, maybe I'll come there. Maybe I'll work out there." And I looked at him and said, "You can't." So well, well, why not? And I said, "He won't allow black people in his house." That was hor- a horrible thing to tell a a young young person like that. Horrible. And and here you are going and working out in this place. But here's what's interesting to me, Robert. You're you're working on the school newspaper, which I think is I think journalism is the greatest training for anything you're gonna do because you have to get to the pith, right? You gotta get to the story, yeah. part of the story, you gotta understand the character, you gotta understand the engine of the piece. It it this this is all making sense to me that you won the prize because it's what you still do, which is you create in your books these spheres of of characters that intersect and have common traits. And that you find, it's very interesting to learn this because you find the common humanity in people that has to come from your worldview from when you were young and you were first writing. Do you ever stand back from the world, and, and, and these are also the worlds that you create, and say to yourself, why are things so off the rails? Yeah, I mean, I think I think ev- everybody does, um, and I think it just goes back to to a human nature, uh, ego. Um, I think a lot of it uh, has to do with the fact that uh, the world is still run by um, too many white men. And I don't think that's a a uh, perspective of what the world really is all about. Um, I think that you have too much machismo, and you know, you look at what's going on in Ukraine, and you know, I, I don't know all the details of it, but a lot of that is a, a guy that is longing for the Soviet Union to, to rise again and to be powerful, and he's doing a lot of the things that Hitler did. He's rewriting history and in the history. He's also, books. they 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 say he's the wealthiest man in the world. Yeah, because he stole it all, right? Of course, because he's a thief. Yeah, and so I, I just think that if we had, uh, if we had more women in positions of power, if we had more people of color who could really truly represent, uh, I don't know if it would change things, but uh, the dynamic would certainly be different. I think it would help. Yeah, it would be certainly more representative of what the world actually is. Yes. No, no doubt. Have you experienced any kind of? Um, prejudice against you in the world of literature you know every um every once in a while i'll get i'll get that email i got one not long ago i got this email from this woman who accused me of um uh fat shaming that i had a character in my book and i referred to her as you know having big boobs and uh being you know being heavy or overweight or something and and i i tried to sort of gently say that's not me that is a 16 year old boy who is you know this woman has taken a liking to him and so what is he going to notice 
And boy, she just would let me, she just would let me have it. She was like, you know, oh, don't do that. You're the, you're the author. You're the person that wrote it. And you know, what you begin to realize is um, some people have a platform and they want to use your platform to promote their platform. You see it on Facebook. You can see it on Instagram. Right. You can see it, you know, I, and you, you're not going to win that battle. You're just not. No. All you, here's what you can do. Block. That's what I that's do. That's what I do. You're not going to say something nice. Goodbye. Yeah, that's what I Bing. do. Bye. I, I, yeah. I normally, I normally don't, don't respond. Uh, I don't know what compelled me in this instance to respond. Um, because I, 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 I have come to learn that, you, you know, and, and that's fine. So and if, if somebody doesn't like one of my books, there's a lot of really great authors out there for them to read. If you could create... Let's just say if you could if you, if you could create any platform to reach children in the world of books, what, what would it be? You know, that's a hard one for me because I've been asked, and I do a lot of teaching, and I've been asked if I'd come in to like teach. And what I teach just doesn't translate to kids. And so I really had to, I, 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 it took me many, many times to figure out what is it that, that a young kid wouldn't do and so you know i got to the point where i'd go in with an opening sentence and i'd say okay i'm going to give you an opening sentence and i want you to write me a one-page story and i'd give them the opening sentence and and that's all that really translated for for the kids you know trying to talk to them about plotting character that that doesn't work it would just get, give them a, one very specific task and and let them let them carry it forward um and, you know, I, 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 the other thing I will say is, uh, for me, books are not intended to carry a message. Books are intended to entertain. And that's what I try to do. I never start out writing a book with a, with a premise that I'm going to, I, I want to make this point or want to make that point. Um, you know, when I wrote The Extraordinary Life of Sam Hell and, and Ernie, who's the only, you know, black child that Sam knows in really all of Burlingame, California, you know, I can, I can talk about the racist overtones that occur because of what he's dealing with through the story. And you were inspired probably by Blair that, that your high school paid your first newspaper article and first profile. Yeah. Yeah. Er, Ernie was a blend of, of Blair and a, and a, an athlete named Lynn Swan, who was a, uh, the wide receiver for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I think he won four Super Bowls. Well, he went to my high school. He was older than I am, but he went to my high school. And so that's where I came up sort of with the character of Ernie, uh, a misfit, like Sam's a misfit, like uh, Mickey's a misfit. There's many, many ways to write for children. And I notice in your books that children are, are they're very full-bodied characters. And maybe someday you will just want to pluck one and write from that child's point of view. Yeah, I, you know... Um, I had a lot of school teachers ask me if I would write Sam Hell in a cha children's book, and I'd, so I'd have to take out, um, you know, the sex scenes and you know some of the yeah, sure, things. sure, the adult stuff, um, yeah. But um, I just I haven't. Well, don't need it. You have you have so much on your plate, but it's something I think that will evolve down the line. 
only because of this, Robert, so much of your inspiration comes from that platform of your life yeah. with your teacher and the kids you grew up with and the the mother that, that guided you, The what happened in your home. I mean, it's very much on the surface of the emotions of your book. Um, of all your books, there's it's very they're very personal, and this is my new thing, Robert. And you got to forgive me. I said if it's not personal, I don't want to read it. Yeah, I don't want to read fabricated worlds. Yeah. I want to read what's real, right? What's coming out of you, what you observe, what you see, and I think you're a master at it. Well, I appreciate uh, they're it. Very, they're very they're well, they're very emotional. Thank you. And I understand it takes a piece out of you too to write that. It, it, it does. Sure. I mean, it, it, it really does. I, I have told people this story when I was writing The World Played Chess. And I got to that very, uh, that scene in the book where I, I knew, I knew what was going to happen to Victor Cruz. I knew it. And I didn't know it up until that moment. And I wept. I really wept. Because I, I sat there and I thought to myself, I don't. I don't want to do this. I I want him to come home from Vietnam. But fifty thousand young men didn't. Oh, and and the what what a tragedy. The heartache, the heartbreak. And and I think that's the thing that we sometimes forget. We think, oh, fifty thousand young men died in Vietnam. But we don't think that every one of that fifty thousand was mourned by parents, by siblings, by friends. The pain that was caused 50,000 times. 50,000 times. It's just 50 million, 50 million, 50, yeah. you know, you just keep multiplying it because, you know, we carry those wounds. Um, this is another thing I notice sometimes that you do is that the next generation takes on the weariness of the previous generation. And if you think about our country in, that, in those terms, and all countries, all people all over the world, um, it, it's layered and complicated what legacy actually is. Very much. Uh, I, have a, I have a nephew that um, was just over in Africa and his engineering team uh, from college went over and they built a bridge and they built a suspension bridge across a river and it's going to change the lives of you know, 4,800 tribes members over there. Uh, kids will be able to go to school in the winter because it won't wash out. I mean, all these that, and I, and I, I emailed him. He, he was emailing, you know, from Africa and, and I emailed him back and I said, Landon, uh, what you have done is you have created an amazing legacy. That bridge will live long after you're gone. It will still be there and it will still be prominent in people's lives. And that's that, that and I would, I told him, you know, how, how much he should really take to heart on this because he's made himself in some sense immortal. And the response I got was nothing, nothing. And you know, that's okay because I felt it was important to say, and I hope someday, just like I have done, I will, he will look back and he will go, now I get it. Now, now I, like when I said to you, now I understand when my mother said, I did the best I could. I understand what that means. It means I'm a human being, I'm not perfect, I have my fallacies. I have the things I'm dealing with in my life. And yet I'm trying to give you the best life possible. And there is nothing harder than a f big family of kids. 
I, I used to say my mother, we never had to salt our food because my mother cried into the sauce. You know? <laughs> There's no, there was plenty, plenty of salt at that table. But because, it, it, you know, they struggled. Your mother had a career. My mother had a career. Then you have these kids and that's your career. Yeah. And it's, and it's backbreaking. Yeah. Can you speak to your faith and what it means to you? Yeah. Because there's a, there's a, there's a core humanity in your work too. I mean, and, and it has all of the human emotions and all of the human activities and all the things that we do to express ourselves to one another in your books. They're not, uh, what I'm trying to say is they're not, um, how would I say square? They are very full bodied. So can you just speak to, to faith and what that in terms of the intersection of that with your art, or is it one river upon which everything flows? Um, so I'll, I'll say this, faith and religion are not the same thing in my, in well, my okay, mind. Okay, that's, well, I, I think that's true. Yeah. I can think everybody who's listening to this right now agrees with you. Um, I was raised Catholic um, and <laughs> I always had a very strong faith. My, my mother has an incredibly strong faith. And um, as a young boy, I would go to a uh, Good Friday Mass by myself for three hours by myself. I would go. I remember sitting in there throughout the whole three hours. I would just, I don't know why I did it, but, but I did it and I, and I would go. Um, and I, I developed a very personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, it's not one that I flaunt. It's not one that I talk about in, in great detail, but I have a very strong personal relationship with, with Jesus Christ and with the blessed mother Mary. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of people will get into debates with me about, you know, the Catholic Church, blah, blah, blah. And, and I will say often, when you find the perfect church, let me know because I would love to join. Um, and that's not to say, I, some of my best friends are Jewish. Some of my best friends who I golf with are Muslim. Um, some of my best friends are Buddhist. And the, the one core thing uh, for all of them is that they they have a, a strong belief system, a strong a strong faith, and that's all I've ever wanted for my children. Because I said this earlier in our discussion, I never want my children to feel like they're alone. No, no matter what happens in life, I want them to feel like things will work out. It will be okay, because there's a there's a there's a higher being. There's something more that they can that they can relate to. Now, I, I I've also said this. If it turns out that I'm wrong, when I die, okay, sign me up on the other side. There's nothing you know, there. But you're you you just have pointed to something that I think is so important, which is your personal relationship with your God. Yes, your personal relationship. Yes, that that's really the central idea. I too am a big devotee of the Blessed Mother. I mean, I probably call on her forty-seven times a day, yeah. which your mother did too, and mine did too. Um, but the the complexities and the problems that we have and the mistakes that we make, there's that great there's that great notion that God sees the trying, not supposed to be perfect, which is why you can write these full-bodied worlds because this is really real, right? And I, I you know, I I I don't believe. Uh, you know, George George Carlin does this great skit about you know about a god. There's this little man up there, and he's watching everything we do every day, and he's keeping score. 
and when we die, and he's doing this whole thing, right? And it's it's hysterical. It's really, really funny. Um, again, I, I, I don't believe in a malevolent God. I don't believe that there's somebody up there keeping score. What I believe is that there is some some higher source that will someday wrap his or her arms around me and give me a hug and say, you did a good job. You did a good job. Right? That's beautiful. And I could go one step further and say that your nephew that built the bridge in Africa, many, many, many years from now when you die, he's going to get up at your funeral and he's going to tell that story. Well, I hope so. He's a good kid. He really is. He's a good young man. He will because it gets in. Sometimes it takes a little time. And also- For all of us. He may, he may think what he did wasn't that great. He wants to top it. And that may be the reason he hasn't he hasn't put his arms around it yet, but he will. Yeah. That's the way it goes. Robert Dagoni, you are a national treasure. Um, I'm so glad that you spend your time completely at that chair writing where you belong and that, you know, you're really, I don't even think you're mid-career. I think you're just getting started. Let's hope, huh? That would, would that be nice? I don't plan to ever retire. I hope you all are clicking and running out to get Robert Dagoni's books. I recommend his Tracy Crosswhite series. You gotta read The Extraordinary Life of Sam Hell. The World Played Chess. And his latest one is a masterpiece, One Last Kill. If you like this episode, feel free to leave us a review. Your feedback helps us continue these conversations. To stay up to date with us throughout the holiday season, Follow us on Instagram at You Are What You Read Podcast. We'll be dropping new shows from now till the end of time. So every Tuesday, just check in with us and meet some of the world's greatest artists, luminaries, authors, and the books that they write. We're always posting giveaways and book recommendations over at Instagram, so don't miss out. Thank you all again for listening, and always, always thank you for reading. <laughs>